recordings. Presidential attorney James Clear said the insinuation was totally false, and he said he would ask the Department of Justice to begin an investigation to determine what persons may have violated matters involving a grand jury by leaking the allegation about the tape's authenticity. The stock exchanges were closed today in observance of Washington's birthday. The WOR Weather Watch update for New York City and vicinity. Fair tonight, lows in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, increasing cloudiness. A chance of rain developing in the afternoon. The highs in the mid to upper 40s. Rain likely tomorrow night, ending Wednesday morning, followed by partly cloudy weather Wednesday afternoon. The lows tomorrow night in the upper 30s. The highs on Wednesday in the mid 40s. Current temperature 33 degrees. Humidity, 40%. The winds are northwest at 6 miles an hour. And the barometer reads 29.93 inches and rising. Highlights in the news at this hour. Father of kidnapped victim Patricia Hurst makes free food offer to her abductors. Awaits response from the SLA. New Jersey Senate President expected to announce tomorrow the purchase of 43 million extra gallons of gasoline for New Jersey motorists. President Nixon gets a warm welcome in the Deep South as he tells a big crowd that the nation will get stronger. And that's the latest from the WOR Newsroom. Lester Smith reporting over WOR New York and RKO General Station. I'll be back with another full 15 minutes of all the late news. here a couple of weeks ago. I knew that the gas shortage couldn't be all bad. It has changed America's habits in so many really significant ways. For example, uh, here's a note here from the Wall Street Journal. It says, uh, a book wholesaler now peddles copies of novels to customers waiting online in a Valley Stream New York gasoline station. And they're buying books like they're going on a style. They're sitting there reading, and, uh, you know, next thing you know, who knows, you know? We may create a literate nation just through the fact that nobody can get any high octane, you know? I'm just delighted. What's next? I mean, conversation may come back, all kinds of things. Yeah. Of course, right now, we're in the beginning stages of this whole phenomena, and the conversation that you usually hear in gas lines consists of stuff like this. Hey, who are you training now? Come on, what are you training to get ahead of me, you? That's uh, just about what you usually hear. Uh, do you agree? Have you heard that yet? You haven't. Well, that's that's because you're the only guy that I know who drives an M4 tank. I see. I see. 
I see. Well, of course, you're like, uh, we, we, uh, <laughs> all present company exempted. You live in Connecticut, and people are so polite in Connecticut. There's none of that stuff. I mean, you know, it's not like Jersey. No, 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 you just cross the state line. It's like the, the difference between the, the Winkies and the Munchkins. Uh, you just cross the state line. It's very different. Oh, yes. Are you going to agree that people who live in New York are different from Jerseyites? Distinctly. And I can tell you, people who live in Kansas are very, very different, say, from uh, uh, Connecticut people. Yes. So it follows, then, that Connecticut people are different from Jersey. And how are they different? Well, they're, they're elegant. There's a certain style. Uh, yes, that's true. There's a, certain, uh, there's a certain appreciation of the finer things that you see in Connecticut that you don't see. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you something about the Connecticut that impressed me highly. I was walking down a street the other day in Connecticut, and I was very impressed with the garbage you see on the streets in Connecticut. It's much higher quality than you see, say, in Plainfield. Uh, and, I, and I'm very, very impressed. Uh, so would you please give me a little music to salute uh, the... That's right. Hey, sir. So it's about time we recognize Connecticut. I'm the chic of Mary Oh, I love to just walk around at night when you're asleep. Yeah. Into your tent. Out. <laughs> oh, the stars above you will shine. And the light on the way to love, 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 love. You'll rule this land with me. I'm the sheep, 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 a bear. Rubby, all together, sing it. I'm the sheep, a bear, rubby. Yeah, yeah. He's a censor. This is the second part. Into your tent aisle. <laughs> to clear the sinuses. Yes, sir. That's better than Dristan, I'll tell you. It's even more fun than X-Lax. And now to uh, clear the air and to bring us back to reality, please, Joe, if you will. Catch a live trout at the International Sports Show. Talk to famous athletes. Learn fly casting from an expert. Bid on a deluxe travel trailer at our daily auction. See trained animals. Plan your 74 family vacation on wheels <laughs> in the woods on the water at the International Sports Show. 
Visit every manufacturer of recreational vehicles in one hour. The largest display ever under one roof. The New York International Sports, Camping, Vacation, and Travel Show. March 9th through the 17th at the New York Coliseum. It's bigger than all outdoors. <laughs> oh, yes. Special discount tickets are available to WOR listeners by mailing in a card to Sports Show. Care of WOR New York, 10000018. You'll be sent as many discount tickets as you request. Yeah, it was nice. I, I felt good about singing that. Oh, by the way, I tell you the reason that I'm feeling uh, unaccustomedly uh, manic tonight is because I had a very exciting night watching late, late television uh, the, uh, last night, in fact. Uh, I think people who uh, go to bed, uh, many of them do. We have a nation of early goer to bedders. We go to bed earlier than most people in the rest of the world. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. In fact, it's almost impossible to see a Spaniard in Spain going to bed earlier than 4 in the morning. He's having dinner about 10, you know, 11. Yeah. Oh, sure. It's only here in America. Early to bed, early to rise. It's that whole, uh, that work Protestant ethic. Yeah, get out early with your tail bushy-tailed, you know, getting in line at the Shell Station at the crack of dawn. You know, all these things. And it's led us nowhere. It's led us nowhere. It's just, uh, in fact, I think going to bed early is the quickest way to split the family into fragments. Let's figure it out now. You're not with anybody when you're asleep. No way. You are communicating to no one. And, uh, and if you're early goer to better, of course, even your dreams tend to be dull and stodgy. You know, everybody in your dream reads the Reader's Digest. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> if you stay up a little later, you see the headiness of the early morning hours when you, you glance over at your, you know, your, your electric west clocks. And uh, you look over there, you know, your dollar ninety-eight, the one, the one you picked up at Corvettes on the sale that time, and it makes the hum. Uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, I've, I, I've uh, seen electric clocks that, you know, <clears throat> and they make ominous ticking. So as you look over there, and it says 10 after 4. You know you got to get up, see, it's a uh, 7.30. There's a certain heady, the hell with it all, quality that enters your life at that point. I mean, you, you've hit the point of no return. You know, three hours of sleep, what's it going to do? Three hours of sleep is just a soup son. For, the early gore to betters are addicted to sleep, I've discovered. And sleep is largely an addiction. That uh, some of the greatest men in the history of mankind got by on less than five hours of sleep a night. Thomas Alva Edison. And he did better than most of you. Thomas Alva Edison rarely ever slept over four hours a night. In fact, he, he, uh, he insisted that people would wake him up and he'd go right back. He said he, said he felt much better. I have to agree with them. That's, that's true of me. And, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, so, late-night television is not because I'm a television fan. Don't confuse that issue, not at all. Late-night television, for students of sociology, yeah, or students of his fellow man, is invaluable. Because at late-night television, they let it all hang out. Uh, <laughs> they really do. And, you know, early in the evening, they have uh, Debbie Reynolds movies. Uh, they, they tend to, uh, you know, they tend to have things like uh, The Waltons, and, uh, you know, this nice uh, family stuff. But as the, as the time gets later, the stuff gets racier and racier. Until maybe at 3 in the morning or 4 in the morning, you see stuff, man, 
that you just, you just, you know, you'd love to see on a screen if you stayed up late enough. You would. For example, it was a film late last night that was shot in South Africa. Now, you don't see many South African movies early in the evening. It was in color, and these guys were out uh, in a jeep, and they were well, actually, it was a rover, it was a Land Rover, and they were in the desert, and it was a it was a film about the, a pilot, and the the great opening scenes were him crashing in the desert in what looked to me like a Cherokee 180. Really realistic. I can tell you this is a pilot. He, he, it, was, it was realistic, all right. And it was in color. You could see the desert coming up. And it was shot in South Africa in the desert. Well, later on, there was a scene that, uh, that must be uh, relayed to you early goer to betters because this is the kind of stuff you miss, you know, sticking around early and seeing all those old Charlton Heston films where he's playing Moses or God or something, and Debbie Reynolds where she's playing 12 forever. Uh, you, you miss so much of the good stuff. They were driving in a Jeep, see? And, and there they are out in the desert, and they've got, you know, it's the sun is beating down, and they're wearing desert clothes. And this is an absolutely waterless desert, nothing but sand. When the Land Rover stops, it's an open Land Rover, it looks like a Jeep to you, and it's a Land Rover, see? And it, it stops, and they can't get it started again. So it will, will not kick over. So one guy says to the other guy, Oh, he says, I say, the battery's down. The battery is dead. And so at that point, he jumps out, and he runs around, and he opens up the hood, and he looks in it. And he says, Well, he says, I, I say, he says, I, I see, we, 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 we have, the battery has no water in it. The battery has no water in it. At which point, they had this beautiful girl with them, at which point they can't figure out how to get this water for the, for the battery. At which point the two men send the girl off into the desert to look the other way while they obtained water for the battery. Okay? Now, you don't see that on Debbie Reynolds' films. You won't even see that in a Charlton Heston movie. And it was, you know, kind of a racy moment. It just <laughs> a moment of, of a true realism. Now, but what really got me excited? It was the same night, watching TV, on came this grainy black and white I, I never miss a monster film. I, I, uh, I happen to be addicted to monster films. And uh, on, came the, uh, <laughs> on came Frankenstein meets the space monster. Now, if you ever get a chance to see that, that is a classic of the genre. And uh, it, it really is. It's got it all going. It's, got, it's Frankenstein meets the space monster. And uh, it came on uh, with, the, with the, you know, grainy black and white. You could just see they're using... They're using film that they got on some surplus market someplace, you know, overaged film, and it's grainy, and the, the camera jiggles a little bit. They did. They couldn't afford to rent two tripods. They only had one tripod, see? So you could tell which camera had the tripod when they switched, you know? So it was really kind of great, and, and it had a fantastic premise, see? I'll give you the premise. The premise was, uh, was about the space program, you know, NASA. And they were sending up these rockets with, with guys and, you know, uh, astronauts. Well, they got an idea. This was before, of course, uh, we sent up uh, all the moon shots. This is an old film. It's about 1963 or something like that. And, uh, and they, they, they began to worry, see, about the fact that they were going to lose a man one day. He says, we're going we're gonna to lose somebody. They're going to shoot him up there. Why don't we just take... We, uh, we've worked out a new system. So they, they created uh, a, a space... They scrapped a capsule with this guy trapped in it, right? But he's not an ordinary man. He has been killed in a in a terrible accident earlier, someplace, 
and they took a brain and put it in his head. Now, you can see already, they've got something going. See, so if he gets killed, again, it won't be anything. He's just, you know, he's, a, he's already been dead. And they, they created a Frankenstein. And how they did it was by nuclear inversion. And, uh, yes, they got this guy in there. Now, okay, you got it going. And they shot him up in the air like that. But unbeknownst to them, there was a, a flying saucer was observing this. And in the flying saucer were these evil, these terrible evil people from another planet, which incidentally was named Home. Um, <laughs> which I kind of like that touch. And in the in this uh, in this uh, flying saucer was the head monster. It wasn't even a monster. He was a, a you know he was a little, he lived on another planet. You can't call him a monster. Let's not be prejudiced. Uh, he had a round head that looked like a ping pong ball. And uh, yes, and he was the most lascivious uh, denizen of another planet I've ever seen in my life. And uh, he was sitting there uh, cackling at the controls, and he had little pointed ears. And, uh, and and with him was this fantastic seven-foot-tall woman who was very well-endowed, and it looked like she was wearing some kind of a lampshade on her head. And uh, she was the princess. They kept referring to her as the princess. And why were they here on Earth? Well, now that's where the plot got interested. It seemed that there had been a nuclear war on their planet. And, uh, and they had been out on an expedition in their ship, right, with the princess. And the nuclear war wiped out the entire population. And as he said, those who are not dead are the unlucky ones. Those who are dead are the lucky ones. The unlucky ones will go mad. And then they will die. We are all that is remaining of our magnificent race. So we have come to Earth to get breeding stock. To repopulate our planet. In other words, they have come to Earth to capture a lot of girls. And they did. They, they landed their spaceship in Puerto Rico. And, of course, there's a lot of parties with girls lying on a beach. And these guys are running around capturing girls and bringing them back. Oh, it was a very complex plot. But the point that, I, that, that, that made me feel good about was that I was watching the credits. Now, a lot of you people don't watch the credits of any space or monster and or sci-fi film you see, do you? That's right. That's the, you should watch the credits. Uh, first of all, the hero in this was played by the guy that does the Pathmark commercials now. Yes, uh, you can see his, his career has really uh, sort of gone up and down. See, so here he is. He's now, he's now selling pork chops. But in those days, he was, he was a scientist and he was creating Frankensteins. And at one point, he said the greatest line that I've heard in recent days to come out of one of these, these clinker movies. He looked right at the camera. And here he is, surrounded by test tubes and things. And in the back, and you could see shots of his oscilloscope making green lines. It was in black and white, by the way. You knew it was green, you know. And you, once in a while, something would go, and the spark would go. You know, they always have these things with the spark gaps in the monster movies. And he's, he's wearing a white coat, and he has a stethoscope. He's always carrying a stethoscope. Never used it once in the film, but he always got it, see. That means he's a doctor and he's official. So he turns to his nurse, who had all the acting ability of a mechanized clothespin, and he turns to her and he says, Why are we doing all this? <laughs> he looks right out at you. And you, you he said, That's a great question. Why are we doing all this? And uh, he says, I don't know why we're doing all this. 
And uh, later on, Doctor Nadir, who was uh, the evil guy in the in the spaceship, he said he had another good line too. He said, uh, he says, "Ah, Princess." He had a slight curious accent, a little bit like a Bavarian accent. He said, "Ah, Princess, we have received signals on the one hundred four point five kilocycles with interrupted waves coming from KC one seven two nine." And she says, "What does that mean?" I don't know. Yes, he caught the spirit of the evening quite well. But in the credits, it was directed, produced, and written by an old friend of mine. I had never realized this. I had known this guy for years, and he did it. How would you like to be watching the credits of a, of a, of a fantastically funny space film and all of a sudden you realize your friend Aki did it, and he never mentioned it to you. Because my friend did this. And I, I, I you know, it was, it was one, of the, one of the most grotesque monster films I've ever seen. Which reminds me, this is W.O.R., New York. And speaking of monsters, <laughs> George, <laughs> has, has it ever occurred to you that you may be living on another planet to the rest of the world? That's right. That, that New York, the island of Manhattan specifically, could be a giant meteorite that hit right here in the middle of the water millennia ago and produced its own race of natives. And we've been wondering why we're, you know, why New York is so different from Kansas. Well, it could very well be that we are the men from outer space. Which, uh, please, do you have that Acme spot in there? Right, a touch of realism. Excuse me. What's your name, please? Mrs. Delavelle. Mrs. Delavelle, right. I see you've just finished checking out here at Acme, and right. we'd like to invite you to do a comparison shopping test with us. Right. We want you to go to a store that you select yourself and duplicate the order that you just made here at Acme, item for item, pound for pound, and then come back and we'll compare the sales slips from that other store and the Acme slip. Would you do that with us? No, no, what's the catch? It sounds kind of easy. Oh, there is no catch, <laughs> and it is easy. We just want you to go and duplicate the order and come back, and we'll check the two sales slips. Today, you mean? Sure, right now. I would love to. Okay, here's Mrs. Delaval back from the other store, and you've done your comparison shopping, right? Right. What was the result from the other store? Uh, 3580 at the other store and 3407 at Acme. Okay, Mrs. Delaval, you've had a chance to figure the savings. $1.73 at you, Acme. You saved $1.73 at Acme. Right. Thank you very much, Mrs. Delaval. Okay. Rose Kennedy shares with the world some very personal thoughts in her new book, Times to Remember. She writes for the first time about her retarded daughter and about Jack and Jackie's romance. You can read it all in the March issue of Woman's Day magazine, because only Woman's Day is serializing this extraordinary new book. What's more, the March Woman's Day has ten big pages of price-right fashions to sew, knit, crochet, or buy. Look for the yellow cover with the luscious chocolate cream dessert. Right, right, uh, right. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, uh, I called my friend then today. See, I had to do it. Now, I didn't even know he made this classic. And there it was, written, directed, <laughs> shot. He did everything except uh, play uh, Dr. Nadir in it. They had great names. You should have seen the monster. The monster's name was Mull. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was Mull. And uh, he was uh, a fantastic monster. For some reason or other, they carried him around in their, 
in their spaceship behind the tremendous set of bars. And uh, he was like a like an interplanetary uh, waste disposal. That whenever they they uh, they ran into somebody they didn't like, they threw it to the monster. <laughs> Grab it, eat him up. <laughs> so today I called my friend. I said, you know, I call him up, and uh, he you know he's a very distinguished type and a highly creative filmmaker. I mean, you know, he's the kind of guy that did all kinds of stuff for two thousand and one. He works for Stanley Kubrick, and you're know, very official. So, so uh, I called him up, and uh, the, he came on the line, and I hadn't talked to him for a long time. See, it's one of those things. You know, you, you have friends that you don't talk to for maybe a year, maybe two years go by, and uh, yet they're great friends. He's a, he's a great friend of mine. So the phone rings, and I could hear it ringing in his office, and I said, please put him on the phone. His name is Bob Gaffney. And uh, the girl says, uh, yes. So uh, she says, who shall I say is calling? I said, will you tell him Dr. Nadir is on the phone? And uh, <laughs> he comes on, he says, hello? And I says, hello. And he recognized my voice. He says, I was afraid somebody would see that. I says, I saw it, and I think I'm not alone. He says, I don't know what to do about that thing. He says, that was shot ten years ago. And he said, that thing comes back every couple of months to haunt me. He says, I can't get rid of it. He says, that thing has a life of its own now. I says, well, it certainly had a life of its own last night on, <laughs> on the old boob tube. I said, it came through loud and clear, Bob. And he says, boy, that thing, he says, you can't kill it. He says, that's like a, a, 63, a 63 Buick. You can't kill it with a sledgehammer. And I says, well, what do you mean? He says, you know that thing is now out on 16 millimeter? He says, they rent it out. He says, that thing is being rented out all over the world. And he said, they show that all over the place. And he says, the worst thing I ever did. I said, well, Bob, there's a lesson in that for all of us. He says, you know, I made a great mistake in that film. I said, what did you do? He said, I put my name on it. <laughs> he says, he says it's fantastic. And I says, well, tell me about it. You know, how, how, how did you know you you made this this film, and and uh, how did it come about? Well, he said, how it came about. He says, kind of a sordid story. He said, I was, he said, I was on the, you know Tap City at that point, and uh, he said, I'm looking around for something to do, and he said, this uh, this guy comes along, and he says, I want want to make a, he said, I want to make a real schlock sci-fi film. He said, I don't have no script, I don't have nothing. He says, but I got some dough. And I want to make this film. And he says, but we don't have no money, hardly. So he said, at that point, I said, you've come to your man. He, you know, he, he thought it would die a quick death. He said, F you know what, pick up a couple of bucks and go on. He said, so it turns out that we shot it. Now, if you're interested in the technique of movies, uh, Bob, uh, or rather, Joe, listen carefully now. Come on, get back here now. Tell him, tell him to worry about the coffee break later. He'll get it when it's, when it's his turn. He sa I says, how long did it take you to make that film? He says, well, five days. <laughs> five days. Do you realize shooting a film in five days is like the equivalent of writing War and Peace in 12 minutes? I said, uh, five days. He says, yeah. He said, the, the guy wanted to do it in three. He said, but I, I, I raised so much hell, he said, that they increased the budget, and we did it in five days in Puerto Rico. I said, oh, Puerto Rico. I said, yeah, that's, that's a very good. He said, yeah, well, we got a little bit. He said, but we couldn't get any time out in the sun, he said, because we were working like crazy. He said, have you ever tried to shoot a feature-length film in five days? And I said, you probably had to include a lot of stuff you didn't want to include. He said, you better believe it. 
He said, for example, he says, if you look carefully, there was one scene, he said, where you could see a lot of people watching us shoot through the bushes. <laughs> he says, yeah, you know, they were shooting in Puerto Rico. People came and they were looking through the bushes at them while they were shooting. He says, if you look carefully in the background, you could see all those people watching us. There was a guy selling hot dogs there to the crowd. I said, well, Bob, I said, that, that must have been tough. Said, yeah, he said, I tried to cut it out. He said, but they kept coming around. I said, well, what was the worst problem you had shooting the film? He said, well, no money. He said, no money. And he says, for example, he says, all the space guns that are used in the film, by the way, space guns played a great role in this film. These guys were always appearing, see, wearing these space suits, and they would shoot the people who were giving them trouble. See, they go, wham, you know, would go. He says, well, now, we, we, uh, we had to get space guns. I said, where'd you get them? He says, Woolworth. He says, we went down, we bought a bunch of, of Woolworth space guns. I said, you mean you got Woolworth space guns? Yeah. He says, but uh, we had to make them look kind of different. So what we did, we put, we put mirrors in the front. So they looked like they were flashing, see? They had mirrors in the, in the front, they had the barrel. And he said, now the actual space gun had just a little spring in there. And when the kid, it was plastic. He said, when the kid would uh, pull the trigger, we'd go doing, doing, doing. And he said, so we didn't want that. We didn't want to go doing. He says, so we put a mirror in the front. He says, not of course, we didn't realize what we caused then. I said, what happened, Bob? He says, well, then we had to shoot all shots into the sun. So there's the space guns. He says, and it made everything really, uh, we had real problems with contrast then. Half the time you couldn't see anybody's faces, but you could see their guns going. I said, well, I thought that was a good effect, Bob. He said, well, you didn't want it. He said, but that's the way it was. I said, well, that was nice. I said, what else did you do then? He said, well, uh, he said, we had to have a spaceship, and we didn't have no budget for a spaceship. I said, well, it was a spaceship movie. How can you make a movie without a budget for a spaceship? He said, well, that's what I pointed out to the producer. And he says, well, you gotta, you got to figure out something. That's why I hired you. He said, so we went over, and we rented a geodesic dome. You know, one of these little ones. It looks like a little, like a little, uh, <laughs> like a little igloo. And he says, and we sprayed it silver. At that point, we put it up on sticks. And we put a ladder up to the side of it, and that was our spaceship. Well, it's a very convincing spaceship. Here they are sitting there. And, I, and he says, well, we shot the rest of the film in the studio. And I said, in the studio? He said, yeah. He said, the, we, we had a studio out in Long Island. And he says, actually, it was a converted dance hall. It was owned by the American Legion. And uh, we shot it in the American Legion Hall. And uh, <laughs> I says, well, that was kind of great. How long did that take? He says, well, that was four days. I said, you shot the whole thing in nine days? Well, that's pretty good shooting, Bob. You pulled it in, yeah. And uh, he said, well, not exactly. He said, our schedule called for seven and a half. He says, we shot it in nine days, though. He said, that, uh, so because of the extra day and a half, he says, the, the uh, producer wouldn't give me my percentage of the profits. <laughs> I said, oh. He said, yeah, he said, because we need quite a time. I said, well, Bob, uh, what, was, what was the most difficult thing you had to face on the actual show? He said, well, I'll tell you what it was. He said, uh, he says, you know, when, you, when you're shooting a space science fiction, you've got a monster thing there. He said, uh, you have a problem. He says, because actors cannot relate to being from, say, an outer planet. He says, they, 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 tend, to, they tend to not uh, believe their role. And he said, so I had to play it very straight. I told him this was a serious film, and we're doing this because it's a serious sociological study of the ramifications of outer space exploration. And he says, all the actors said, oh, yeah, I see that. And he said, we would shoot a scene, and halfway through the scene, the, 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 the actor would start laughing. 
He said, we were wasting a lot of film. And so he says, we had a, we, we really had a lot of trouble with people. He says, then we had another thing. He says, one time, two spacemen came running up over the hill. And he says, and one guy was running one way. One guy was running. They had these plastic bubbles over the head. He says, and they ran into each other, and one guy cracked his bubble. I said, what'd you do? He says, well, we didn't have any budget for no more bubbles. He says, we had to eliminate them from the film. I says, you mean the actor was out of work? He says, you're damn right. He broke the bubble. That was his fault. He says, so we paid him off for a day and a half. That was $34. We paid him off for a day and a half of shooting. That was the end of it. He's out of work. I, <laughs> I says, well, that's, that's great, Bob. And now, now, we talked about 10 minutes about this film. And he says, you know, he said, it's terrible. He says, I, I, I'm really worried because it's not my name is on this now. And he says, it's probably going to go on forever. He says, I can see the year 2001, and they're still playing this film, and all the other films have disappeared. He says, a recurring nightmare. He says, and ultimately, he says, I can see some French critic picking this film up and making it into a great artwork. And they will call it the Gaffney Movement. And, <laughs> and you know, the Gaffney View of Film. So I said, well, Bob, that's, that's something you produced, created, wrote, directed, shot. You know, he's a cameraman. You shot the film, you did it all in nine days. He says, yep. That's right. He says, one great, one great uncontrollable burst of mediocrity. I did it. I said, Bob, that, that must have been some excitement. He says, yep, it was. I said, Bob, you know, I can't help but thinking of you in another time and another place. He says, yep. That goes for double. Now, I'm going to tell you a story that I've never told anybody, never told it on the air. But, uh, you know, like anybody in show business, I have done many curious things. And many things I have done <laughs> have no relationship to radio or television. But they're all deeply involved in show business. I remember one night in the Mediterranean, I'm speaking of the Mediterranean Sea, the ocean, right? Deep in the bowels of an American carrier, aircraft carrier. Temperature down below decks in that aircraft carrier, 115, maybe. It was hot. And I am lying in a bunk. And the ship is, is hurtling its way through the nighttime sea. And we're off the coast of Turkey. And in fact, we're heading around the great golden horn. It's two o'clock in the morning. And I'm lying in the bunk, sweating my head off. Oh, it's really... Have you ever been so hot and so sweaty and so tired that you're kind of out of your head? Have you ever had that happen to you? Well, I don't know. Most people in their lives haven't, I must admit. I don't think most people have ever driven themselves to the total limits of human endurance. Most people work their eight-hour day, come home, drink their beer, and go to bed. Uh, and that's about the extent of it. And uh, so they don't necessarily find uh, themselves ever really driven to the limits uh, which are beyond your control. So here we are on this aircraft carrier. Why I was there is not even part of the story. It's peripherally part of the story, but not really. But if you've ever been aboard an aircraft carrier that's in action, I'm not talking about an aircraft carrier that's sitting over here at Pier 47. I'm talking about an aircraft carrier that's out doing its sweaty job. You have. Well, uh, this, this particular aircraft carrier, 
was the last carrier that had been commissioned during, well, it was not the last carrier commissioned in World War II. This was not World War II I'm talking about. This carrier uh, was the last remaining World War II carrier that was on active fleet duty as a carrier. You want me to give you its number? CVA-9. Aha. So any of you Navy types will know immediately what CVA-9 was, and this was an attack carrier. Uh, it's, it's, by the way, still in operation, and this carrier is now uh, being used for uh, anti-sub. No, it was not the Ranger. You're wrong. Anyway, this, this baby was going through. It was a beautiful ship, but it had, was not air-conditioned below decks, which the later ones were. Uh, yes, they were, as a matter of fact. But uh, nevertheless, this was hotter than the hinges of hell. And we were, we were barreling through the sea, and I was way down below decks, lying in a bunk, which was uh, about the width of your average bookshelf, and about that, that softness, and uh, hot, absolutely spawned out of my head with, with heat. It was 115 down there, and you, could, you put your hand out on the bulkhead, which was, of course, uh, armor plate steel. And you could just lay your hand on there, and water would drip down the walls. It's very humid over in that part of the world anyway. And out to sea, it's very humid and salt. And every time, it, you drink the water that comes out of the little faucets, you know, they have these little drinking fountains way down below, and it tastes brackish and salty and lukewarm. And uh, so we're laying, yeah, they had it, well, see, we were on, this was on uh, tropical duty, and they had it laced with salt. So we're lying in the bunk there, see, I'm lying in a sack, hotter than hell. And now, up to this point, we, <laughs> we had been working so hard, this, this group of guys I was with, this particular mission we were involved in, so involved and so long, that we had gone maybe 72 hours without sleep. Maybe even longer. I'd say close to four days without sleep. Have you ever done that? This, this produces a curious psychological, physiological effect. That coupled with the heat. And everything started to seem funny. Everything, everything that happened seemed funny. And up above us, right directly above us, we were right under the cat, which is the catapult. Now that particular uh, carrier had a, had a steam catapult. And uh, sleeping under the catapult is an experience. And they were, they were operating 24-hour-a-day combat patrol. That old CAP was going up there. Every 90 minutes, another flight would, come, would take off. They were on a 90-minute rotation. Every 90 minutes, a flight would take off. And another, the, the flight that was out, the patrol that was out, would land. And you'd hear them. You'd hear the arresting gear. And that was always the, the prelim before they, you'd hear that... Uh, the bullhorn, on and on ships. <laughs> you hear that? Uh, uh, there is a banjo in the grove. Banjo in the grove. And you know that another plane is coming. Then you'd hear that. <laughs> you'd hear that bounce, and a plane has landed. And then you'd hear another thing. A banjo in the grove. <laughs> another one landing up above you. And then about 30 seconds later, they'd start launching. Now, the launch sound is a special sound. You hear this thing cocking itself. What it is is a great steam-operated slingshot. 
That's really what it is. It's a, it's a giant slingshot, an enormous piston that literally hurls the A4D, which is the planes we were flying. The A4D literally hurls these babies right off into the into the into the void, right down the carrier deck. And incidentally, you, if you're a flyer, if you're a pilot, and uh, I must say, uh, uh, you have never really experienced the ultimate in thrills until you have been in a in a, uh, I'm talking about flying thrills, until you've been in an aircraft that is landing on the deck of a tossing carrier <laughs> in a in a spanking wind. Oh, wow-wee. And I have done this on several hairy occasions. Holy smokes. So, nevertheless, here we are. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. We've been up for 80 hours now, maybe. Sweating, hot. And I'm lying there in nothing but skivvies. T-shirt. Shorts. That's it. Absolutely just drenched. The bunk is so wet. So it's always wet actually in that climate. But it was it was so wet that the bunk was like sleeping on a sponge. Just you could just feel that water just all over and it was clammy. And at the same time you were so hot. And I'm lying in the darkness, right? And everything is funny. So you hear this give me a little echo, Joe. I'll let them know what it sounds like. Because That's that's the echo. That's the sound of a ship being launched. Uh, there's a long pause between the cocking of the mechanism, and then zoom, off he goes. And another guy's been hurled out into the night in his A4D. Well, I'm lying in the bunk, and everything is is kind of funny to me. Now you reach a point where you're so tired that you can't sleep. You ever gotten to that point? You're physically tired. Your mind keeps running on and on. It's like it's some kind of a giant flywheel. It won't stop. And and I have been trying to sleep now for about a half an hour. We are we are now off the coast of actually we passed the coast of Turkey, and we're now in the immediate vicinity of Lebanon, where incidentally there is a lot of uh, enemy action going on. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening. So I'm lying in the bunk, hot, sweaty, and I turned on the light. Every one of these bunks had a little tiny light above it. This was down in the officer's quarters, had a little tiny light above it. Now, the EM bunks were very different. They had, had these whole pipe things, and uh, the, whole, the light was central above them. But down here, this was in, in, uh, in junior grade officer's quarters. They had a little light. See? So I turned this light on. I was trying to sleep. See? I turned the light on. Liner sweating, and and I and I reached down into into this this uh, this sea bag that I had. I reached down looking for something to do, something to read. See, and I pulled this thing out, and I start to read this book. And and I started to laugh. I was reading it. I was I was laughing. I couldn't stop laughing. Now I knew it was a hysterical, tired laugh. Nothing to do with how good this stuff was. And I look across the the. The darkness, and there on the bunk across this little stateroom from me, lying in the dark, sweating like hell, was Bob Gaffney, the man who committed the uh, <laughs> Frankenstein meets the space monster epic that was on television last night. This was before he did that. And uh, Bob is half asleep, and he's tired. We've been working, 
And Bob says, what are you laughing at? I said, I don't know, Bob, just everything. He says, yeah, I know what you mean. And then, shook, off it goes again, another one. And we start to laugh. We were laughing at the sound of planes being shot off. And then we began to ad-lib a giant movie script in the darkness. We're, we're laughing like hell, see? And, we're, we're, and couldn't remember a word of this the next morning, but we're, we're ad-libbing a movie script at, at 2 and 3 in the morning in the sweat and the heat. And all of a sudden, this clanging bell goes through the ship. Bang, 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 bang. It's GQ, General Quarters. Well, we jumped up out of our bunk and ran down through the dark corridors, which are lit with these dim red lights, to our battle stations. Sweat and heat. My battle, uh, our battle stations, incidentally, were down below in the intelligence, down in the down in the CAP intelligence compartment, where they had this great radar screen. We were down below there, and we couldn't stop laughing. And the, the lieutenant commander is down below looking at us. So what 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 what's up now? Come on, take it easy, guys. And we we were laughing, uncontrolled laughter, wearing the big big navy helmets and all. And that night was just one long, curious, involuted nightmare with the heat and the script and all the uh, all the sounds of the ships being launched high above us on the flight deck. And up above, we're hurling through the night off the coast of Lebanon and Syria. We're at general quarters, and the radar screen keeps whirling around and around. It was a fantastic, uh, total nightmare. And so 20 minutes later, after they've called GQ off, Bob and I are sitting in the wardroom, soaked in sweat and drinking Navy coffee, trying to remember the script that we had invented. I saw pieces of it in the spaceman meets Frankenstein, the spaceman. I really did. That strange nightmare quality to it. These are things that even Stanley Kubrick would never understand. No way. This is WOR New York.